0: Well, as we begin today, I feel like I need to introduce myself to you. I'm Roger Poupard, and I have a uh, thank you. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Wayside. Uh, I'm finishing my 15th year, so the board gave me a time of sabbatical away just to uh, refresh and kind of reset for the next season of ministry. As you saw while I was away, and as you've already known, been touched by our great pastoral team here over the years, we have a, a gifted group of uh, pastors here, and I know you were blessed by the series on the outsiders. I was. I worshiped with y'all online uh, through much of my time away, and it was a great series reminding us of who God is and his great love for us. Well, today we're going to be starting a series in the book of Judges. Uh, Judges you'll find near the beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Uh, Joshua Judges. If you get to Ruth, you're too far, so uh, go back to the beginning uh, there at the Old Testament and you can turn there. As you're turning to Judges, I want to share a couple of headlines that I read recently. Uh, One says, female judge says travelers are no longer safe on highways. Family feud leaves brothers dead. Gang rape leads to victims' death and dismemberment. Government leader caught in love nest. Now, if those headlines sound like something that you've seen on the news recently, they can certainly fit, but all of them come from the book of Judges that we're going to begin studying in our Bible today. Not only are the headlines similar to what we see in our time, but so too is the mindset, which is seen in the summary verse of the book of Judges. Judges 21:25 tells us, "...in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes." Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, we live in a time where we're told to define your own truth. Everybody gets to decide what is right and wrong. And so as we go through this study in Judges, which was written over 3,000 years ago, what we're going to see is this isn't just some dry, dead historical study of the past. Everything that is happening in the book of Judges is stuff that we see happening in our day, which is why this study is so timely for us, because as we're going to see, not only are the times and the mindset the same, but we're also going to find as we go through Judges that... The impact that can be made by a godly man, by a godly woman. As we go through Judges, we are going to see uh, these men and women who stood up in the dark and desperate times in which they lived and the impact that they made and how they changed the direction of history. And so Judges is a book for us to remind us of these type of things. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible today to the book of Judges. As I said, it's just past the book of Joshua. Now, in Joshua, what we find is a record of the initial conquest of the promised land. As God brought his people into the land after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God gave Joshua and the Jews victory over 31 different kings in the land. And while much had been accomplished, there was still more that had to be done. And this is where Judges picks up today, as you see, in Judges chapter 1, because it begins in verses 1 through 2. By telling us, now it came about after the death of Joshua, that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first against for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now if you're not familiar with the history, you'll remember Moses was the man who was raised up by God to lead the nation of Israel out of their time of captivity in Egypt. And when Moses died, Joshua, who was the general of the army, was appointed as the successor. And now we just read how Joshua has died, and there's not an appointed successor. And so the people turn and they inquire of the Lord, who shall lead us? Now, it doesn't tell us specifically how God led them. We find in the past that sometimes it casts lots like the Urim and the Thummim that the high priest had. In whatever way, it points to Judah. Now, Judah was the largest and the strongest of the tribes. And if you look at Genesis uh, 49.10, you see they were also given the commission in the past to lead the nation. And so they're told to go against the Canaanites, which is speaking of the enemy, uh, the foreigners, the non-Jews who are living west of the Jordan. And as Judah goes into battle, verse 3 says, they invite Simeon, one of the other tribes, to go. It says, And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. Now on this slide, you see a map of the area and the different tribal allotments in the promised land that God gave. And I want you to notice where the arrow is pointing to Simeon, That territory given to the tribe of Simeon is completely encircled by the tribe of Judah's allotment. And so as Judah goes into battle, they say to Simeon, come with us. And in verses 4 through 7, it says, So Simeon went with him, and Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. And they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. And they fought Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now, what we're told here is these two Jewish tribes face this Canaanite coalition, and it's led by a guy named Adonai Bezek. His name means Lord of Bezek. So he's kind of the king of that particular town that controlled the area. Now, we see he's a powerful king because in the past, this guy has defeated 70 other kings. Now, he's kept these defeated kings as trophies, and he's been playing with them. It says he's cut off their thumbs and their big toes. And they're, they're kind of groveling around on the ground. And he throws scraps of food from his table. And he watches them fight like wild dogs over the food. And you say, well, why are they cutting off thumbs and, and big toes? Well, the thumbs, uh, if you didn't have that, you can't hold a sword. And so kings, one of their primary jobs was to lead their, their nation in battle. And you cut off their big toes. They can't stand well. They can't run. They can't balance. And so essentially what this does is it ends their career as a, as warriors. They can't lead their nation. It's also a way to humiliate them. And as the Jews defeat this foreign king, it says they do the same thing to him. Now, Bezek says, well, this is just God's way of paying me back. But I want you to notice that God did not command this mutilation, nor did he commend the Jews for doing it. God didn't want the Jews to play with this defeated king the way the pagans did. What he wanted was this uh, cancer removed. He wanted this pagan influence eliminated in the land. But instead of fully following God, uh, the Jewish people start doing things their way and the world's way. And we're going to see as we go through this study, ultimately, that comes back with great consequences. Verse 8 says, Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they captured it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. Now, on this map, you see the arrow pointing to where Jerusalem is, and the territory allotted to Benjamin, which is just north of Judah's. And I want you to notice that it's right on the border, but it's in Benjamin's area. The town of Jerusalem did not belong to Judah, it belonged to to Benjamin. And so they defeat this city because it's very strategic. It's right on the border, uh, but they don't occupy it because it's not in their territory. And after l- defeating the city, they leave it and move on. And because it's vacant, uh, the enemy is going to move back into it. This is going to create problems later. As we see in verse 21, it says, but the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who live in Jerusalem, So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, as you look at the history of Israel, it would be 300 years before Jerusalem fell to to David in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so they create this foothold in the land. Uh, The enemy moves back in. They reinforce the city. And as we're talking about what's happening here, there's there's a warning for us. Because what happens sometimes is as you think about your own life, you remove some sin, you remove some habit in your life, some stronghold, so to speak, that you've had. But if you don't come back in and fill it with the right things, there's this void that can be refilled. Uh, with the things of the past. Jesus warned about this. He told uh, a parable in Matthew chapter 12 and again in Luke chapter 11, where he talked about uh, a man and described it as a house where an unclean spirit had been cast out. And it says, if the, the house is swept and left in order, but it's not filled with the right things, then more spirits will come back and the condition of the person will be worse than it was to begin with. And this is what is happening here. And so as you look at your own life this morning, as you picture your, house, your, your life as a house, what would you say is filling it? What is it that you fill your mind? What is it that you fill your heart with? As you think about the things that God has called on you to remove from your life, as you think about the ways uh, that God has cleaned you up, so to speak, have you filled your life with the things of God or have you let the things of the world come back in? In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27, we're told, and do not give the devil an opportunity. And the Greek word that's used there in Ephesians is tapas. It means a place, position, or region. It's translated as an opportunity. Maybe you've heard of a topographical map. This is why we call it that. It's tapas. It speaks of a uh, place on a map, so to speak. As you think of your life, God says, do not give the devil a foothold, an opportunity, a place. In Ephesians 3.17, instead we're told to make our heart a place where Christ can dwell. And that word for dwell literally means to be completely at home in. It means that Christ is to have every corner of your your mind and your heart. He's to occupy the totality of it. But what some of us do as you think about a house is we keep back a closet or a corner. Don't raise your hand here, and spouses, don't poke your spouse. But how many of you have that junk closet at home, right, that's full of stuff? And some of you are saying, a closet? We have a whole room. It's not just the room. The garage is overflowing, right? So you've kept back an area where it's kind of filled up with this this junk that doesn't belong. And as you think in terms of your life, it could be a past pain. It could be uh, a hurt, It may be some sin or secret desire, some little corner that you're holding back in your heart and mind that you're saying, you know, God's got all of my life except this one little area. And if you're thinking, well, Roger, what's the big deal? I mean, God's got most of my life. I just have this one little area left. Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, we're told a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And if you keep that foothold, if you keep that place you've set aside to hide or harbor some sin, what you're doing is you're giving the devil literally a foothold, uh, a beachhead to move back out into and begin to conquer territory in your life. And here in Judges, that's what's going to happen. They leave the door open for the enemy to return to Jerusalem. And it's going to create disastrous consequences as we go further into this study. But before we get to where the consequences come... Uh, we see in verse 9 that Judah is still trusting in God. They're walking with him. They're taking additional territory. It says they took the hill country. Now, this isn't speaking about Austin. I mean, I know we'd love for God to kind of move in and take over that area of our state, right? Uh, but this is, this is the area in Israel called the Negev. And they also took what's called the Shevelah or the lowlands. So they take this hill country, the mountainous area going into the valley. In verse 10, we see a flashback to Joshua chapter 15. There we're told about Caleb's victory against the giants who lived in Hebron, where you see that arrow pointing. Uh, Hebron uh, was a a strategic city that had great importance. If you remember when the spies back in the book of Joshua went into the land, God sent 12 spies into the land, and 10 of the 12 came back and said, we can't take it. Because they saw Hebron. They saw the giants that were living there. Only Joshua and Caleb said, hey, God said the land is ours. We can take this. And as you read the account there, you see that, that Caleb, when he was 85 years old, after they had to go into the wilderness for 40 years and wander around because of their disobedience and disbelief in God's promise, only the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who said, we trust in God, were left to return of that generation. And Joshua, who was the general, says to Caleb, hey, you've, you've earned your retirement. Uh, what, what, you know, easy place do you want to retire in? And Caleb said, oh, I don't want an easy place. I want Hebron. I want the place that caused the nation to tremble. And at 85 years old, he went up the side of a mountain and he defeated that stronghold. He defeated the giants that lived in the land. In verse 11, we see the next target is Debir, which is also called Kyriah Sefer. The name Debir means an oracle, and Kyriah Sefer means the city of books. What this is telling us is that's the cultural learning center of the pagan culture. It's where the libraries were. It's where all the witchcraft books were. It's where all the, the bad stuff was located. And God says, if you clear out this city, it's going to destroy a main source of the pagan practice that's in the land. And this city was also heavily fortified. It was populated as well by giant-sized warriors. And again, as you go back to the book of Joshua and look, you see after Caleb took Hebron, this neighboring city of Debir, he said, any man who takes this city will marry my daughter. And the reason Caleb was doing that is he said, I want a son-in-law who believes in God. I want a son-in-law who trusts in God. I want, I want somebody in my family who's going to marry my daughter and lead her and her future family, who believes in God. And this guaranteed that the man who took that city would be one who depended upon God. And there was a man by the name of Othniel who went up and took that city. Now, we're going to read about him in Judges chapter 3, so we're going to leave him for later in this series. In verse 17, the conquest continues, as we're told, and Judah went up with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephyr and they utterly destroyed it. So the city was called Horma. Now, Horma literally means to devote to destruction. And they say this was a pagan stronghold, and we wiped it out because God said to eliminate the pagan influence. And because of that, they named the city Devoted to Destruction as they leveled it and removed that pagan worship. The next city mentioned is one we hear about in the news in our day. It's Gaza. We find it in verse 18, and Judah took Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. As you look at this map, you see these are all along the coast. And so what that means is they've moved out of the mountain into the valley, and now they're they're sweeping along the seashore, and they're wiping out the pagan uh, influence there and taking over the land that God was giving to them. And as they're conquering one stronghold after another, we see the source of their success. As verse 19 says, now the Lord was with Judah. God was going before them. God was the one taking the land. Now, it would be nice if we could stop there, but the story continues. And unfortunately, as we see, things are about to change. Because the second part of verse 19 says, and they took possession in the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley. Because they had iron chariots. Friends, iron chariots were the M1 Abram battle tank of the day. These were the most advanced uh, pieces of military equipment in that day. Remember, Israel at this point is is an infantry army. And as they're moving through, they suddenly face this uh, battalion of, of battle tanks, so to speak. And it would be easy to read this and say, well, Judah was simply outgunned, and thus they can't take this area. But when we get to Judges chapter 4, we're going to see another battle that takes place with these chariots. And there, there is a woman by the name of Deborah who leads the nation against 900 of these iron chariots, and Israel defeats them. So what happened? Did God suddenly send a uh, squadron of A-10 warthogs to take out all these uh, battle tanks? No, but they did get air support, because as we get to Judges five twenty one, what we're going to see is God sends this rainstorm to flood the valley, and it bogs down these chariots as they try to maneuver. they're, They're stuck in the mud and they're sitting ducks. The problem here in chapter one was not the force they were facing; rather, it was a lack of faith. God had promised that he would go before the nation. God had promised, I will drive the enemy out before you. You will go with me and we'll go through this. They forgot not only the past successes God gave them, they forgot the promises of God. If you turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 7, in Deuteronomy seven seventeen through 23, this is what we're told. This is God speaking and he says to the Jews as they're preparing to go and take the land. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the people of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them, until those who are left hide themselves from you and perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. And behold, the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. God says, if if I went in and just emptied the land of the enemy before you, will it become overgrown, the wild animals and things would come in. So God was incrementally coming in and removing them as the nation took more and more ground. But the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they're destroyed. God had promised his people, I will drive the enemy out. But it requires you trusting in me. It requires you turning to me. It requires you to fully follow what I'm calling you to do. They begin to fail because their faith and trust in God failed. And because of that, we've seen what happened. Remember we read verse 21 where Jerusalem fell back to the enemy. As their faith falters, other things begin to fall apart like uh, the Jebusites moving in. In verse 22, we see the story shifting to some of the other tribes. We're told, likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with him. Now, the house of Joseph refers to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, uh, the 12 tribes came from the sons. And so Joseph, uh, out of his line came Ephraim and Manasseh, and they go up and they take Bethel. The name Bethel means the house of God. Now, the name of that city was originally Luz. But it was renamed Bethel back in Genesis twenty-eight nineteen because there the Lord appeared to Jacob. And Jacob said, this is the house of God. That was back when God was, well before Israel was the nation it was, well before they were going into the land. And back the covenant God made with Jacob, who was renamed Israel, he says, this land will be given to your descendants. And Jacob said, surely the Lord is here. This is the house of God. And so here they take Bethel. And after this victory at Bethel, there starts to be a series of failures. On this slide, I want you to look at all the cities where the names are in red because those were cities that Israel did not take. The two white X's point to cities they had previously conquered that now fall back into enemy hands. Rather than reading through all the names pictured, let me just highlight a few things. In verse 27, we're told that Manasseh failed not because they lacked power, rather it was because of a lack of obedience on their part. Because verse 28 says, when Israel became strong, notice that, Israel's strong, that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Israel possessed the power they needed to defeat the enemy, but rather than following what God said and removing the enemy from the land, what Israel said is, hey, let's keep the enemy in the land. Let's make them slaves. They can chop our wood. They can draw our water. They can do all those chores and things we don't want. Rather than moving the cancer out and eliminating it, they said, let's just keep it around us and let them be our slaves the same thing happens in verses 29 and 30 with the tribes of Ephraim and Zebulun. When you get to verses 31 and 32, Asher doesn't even try to conquer the enemy. They say, let's just coexist. Let's just move in among them. Let's live and let live. Let's, Have you ever seen those bumper stickers that say coexist and it has all the pagan symbols and other things along with the cross and the coexist? That's judges. Let's just coexist with the people. Let's just let that stuff stay around us. Let's live and let live. Let's not stand for God. All of these compromises are going to have catastrophic consequences later in Israel's history. Have you ever heard of a lady by the name of Jezebel? Jezebel's the queen who married King Ahab and took the nation of Israel from worship of the one true God of Israel to worship Baal and all the pagan gods. She comes from the area that Asher was supposed to conquer and drive the enemy out. But they said let's just coexist. Let's just leave this cancer in the land. And it could have been wiped out. This deadly disease of Baal worship had Israel followed what God had said. In verse 33 we see the dismal account continues as we're told. Nephtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Or the inhabitants of Beth But lived among the Canaanites. The inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth became forced labor for them. The word Beth, remember Bethel, house of God, means house. So it's called the house of the sun. And then Bethanah means house of Anath. And these were Canaanite pagan shrines and deities that were being worshipped. What it says is they they left these places intact. They left these pagan temples there. They said, oh, aren't these nice cultural landmarks or something? Let's just leave them. And what happened is, is they leave this pagan worship in the land, these shrines, the people begin to worship these pagan gods. It's like trying to walk a lion on a leash. Israel's like, hey, we're in control. We've enslaved the people. And if you try to walk a lion on a leash, there's a point where it's going to turn around and eat you. And that's what happens to Israel. They become slaves to the pagans. as we're going to see as we go through Judges. And those who were not physically enslaved became slaves to pagan worship as they turned from God. As we're looking at these things, once again, it's a warning to us. It reminds us, brothers and sisters in Christ, when God tells us to do something, we need to do what God says. We don't do what we think. We don't do what we want. We don't do what the world says. God says, I know better. I know what is coming. I know the consequences for compromise. When I tell you not to do something, it's not that I'm withholding something good from you. I want the very best for you. I have something better, and if you will do what I ask, you will be blessed. It's like when God says to us as Christians, do not marry an unbeliever. It's not that God's saying, I don't want you to have that that man or woman that you, you think is great. It's God says, I know the great pain that is coming as your house is divided. As you try to worship and follow me and your your spouse will, will say, let's just sleep in on Sunday. Let's not go to that. Oh, the kids are this or that. And God is saying, I know the hardship. I know the heartache coming and I'm trying to rescue you. I'm trying to protect you. Spiritual failure rarely is a sudden explosion. Usually it's an erosion. where little bits of compromise over time, build and build. And suddenly there's this catastrophic fall. And this is what happens to Israel. Verse 34 tells us, In the Amorites, another pagan enemy nation in the land forced the sons of Dan, one of the other tribes, into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Do you remember what we just read in Deuteronomy 7? Where God says, I will clear the enemy out before you. As Dan comes down into the valley and the enemy says, No, we're, gonna, we're not leaving. Rather than trusting God and, and, and push the enemy out, Dan just says, okay, fine, too much trouble, and they retreat. In fact, what Dan says is where you see that red arrow is the territory that God was giving to Dan. He says, I want you right here in the middle of the land surrounded by the other tribes, but Dan says, it's just too hard. We're going to go find somewhere that's easy, and where you see that yellow arrow all the way to the north is where Dan moves When we get to to Judges chapter 18, we're going to read about what happens to Dan. They abandoned the land that God gave them. They said, we know better. We'll go find another place that's easier to deal with. And they move to this area to the north that is beautiful. It's well watered. It's lush. But as we're going to see when we get later into Judges, it's also geographically a funnel. And every enemy that came into the land marched right through there. It was a superhighway of destruction as Dan was was overrun over and over by the enemy coming into the land. God said, there's a reason I don't want you there. You think it's good, and I know what's going to happen. But Dan said, God will do it our way. And they go to the north, and they suffer the consequences rather than taking the land that God had promised them. Once again, God knew what was best, but they said, we'll do it our way, and they paid dearly because of the consequences that come. Friends, if we choose to do things our way rather than God's, we are going to find the same thing true in our own life. As chapter 2 begins, God sends a messenger to remind his people why God can be trusted. It's a theophany. It's literally a physical appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And he points to God's past record of faithfulness when they followed him. Judges 2, 1 through 5 says, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bohim, and he said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me what is this you've done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become as thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. And it came about when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. On this slide, you see that God appears to them at Gilgal. Now, notice where Gilgal is. It's right in the center of the land. And Gilgal, if you go back and read Joshua chapter 4, you'll see is the first place as they crossed over the Jordan that that God met them there, and they they camped out there, and they prepared to, to go and attack Jericho. When the Jews first camped in the land after they left Egypt, as they crossed the Jordan River, it was at Gilgal that they obeyed God. They took on the sign of the covenant. It was at Gilgal that God appeared in another theophany as he appeared to Joshua, and he gave him the promise of victory over Jericho and the land. But because of their disobedience now, we're told that God goes from Gilgal to Bochim. This is a name that literally means the weepers, the place of weeping. God says at Gilgal, you trusted me. And you obeyed, and thus you were given victory. But now, because of your disobedience, because you've turned from following me, I'm going to turn from destroying the enemy before you. You want to go it alone? You want to do it your way? Then do it your way. And the people start crying. They weep. They recognize what we've done. As God pronounces this judgment, he asks them this question, What is this you've done? I want you to think about when hard things happen in your own life. When things don't go your way, when there's something that you're facing, do you ever turn and say, God, what are you doing? Now, I want to make clear there are times of suffering that are a result of the broken world in which we live. There are times that you will suffer because of other people's bad decisions But I want you to ask yourself, how many times do hard things happen in your life? How many times do bad things come because of a consequence of your dumb decision? How many times have you said to God, I'm not going to do it your way. God, I'm going to do it my way. And God steps back and says, fine, you want to do it your way, go ahead. And then when the hard things happen, when the consequences come, we turn and say, God, what are you doing? And what God says to us is, no, what have you done? If God were asking us the questions today, would he say, what have you done And holding on to that that area of sin in your life, that substance abuse, that, that addiction of yours from the past that you know what happens when you go and play with that? How many of us have a King Bezek in our life that we've kind of held on and we're playing with him and saying, eh, it's kind of fun, I've got control of him? Would God say to you this morning, what is this you've done where you've turned from following me to following the world? Why have you stopped trusting in me? Why have you turned to the world in its way saying, oh, well, the the world offers us more more things than God does? God says, really? Can the world really give you lasting fulfillment and security? The past compromises of God's people catch up here. The footholds they've given the enemy lead to the downfall of the people. Instead of looking to live lives of purity by separating from the pagan people and their practices, they said, look, we're going to make them our slaves. We're going to make our lives easier. And God says, in your lives, will fall into slavery. As you look at your life this morning, is there something God said to stay away from? Is there something God told you to get rid of? And you've held on to it. You've been playing with it. You have that closet or corner in your, your heart or your mind that you're holding on to. A Gilgal, what God says is, when will you learn? When will you learn? He says to the nation of Israel, do you remember 40 years ago what happened right here? Do you remember your history, Israel? Do you remember when I brought your forefathers out of slavery in Egypt, how I defeated Pharaoh and his chariots and his army, how I brought you through the Red Sea, how you came to the Jordan at flood stage and this impossible thing? I brought the nation over the river here at Gilgal. You covenanted with me. You were looking at Jericho, this city with these massive walls, and you said, how are we going to take this? And God said, I told you to march around the city, and the walls came crashing down. I did that for your fathers. Do you remember how they didn't listen, how they turned from following me and they had to go and wander in the wilderness for 40 years, how everybody, every one of your moms and dads and grandparents dropped dead wandering in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb who trusted in me. And now here we are back in the land and you want to do this again? Friends, when will you learn? When will you learn? And God is telling us today, I want you to turn from the worthless things. I want you to walk with me. Do we really need to go through this again? And you know what we're going to sadly see as we go through Judges? Israel said, yeah, God, we want to pay the dumb taxes ourselves. We want want to make the same mistakes. We want to see if this replays the same way. And as we're going to see as we go through Judges, for 350 years, the nation goes through the same cycle from sin to ultimately slavery seven times. They will go into captivity and slavery under the pagan people. They'll cry out to God in supplication and prayer saying, God, show your mercy and grace. Send to deliver. God will raise up a judge. And they will have a period where then they defeat the enemy. There's silence and rest in the land. But then they go back into sin seven times. We're going to see over and over. They say, God, we want to do it the hard way. Friends, look at our nation today. Look at America. God is saying to our country, do you really want to do it the hard way? Can you not look at history? Can you not learn? Can you look at Israel and what happened when they turned from following me? Historians tell us there are 22 great civilizations in the history of mankind that have arisen, and 19 of the 22 major civilizations collapsed and fell when they became like America is today. There's still time for our country to turn back to God but God says, if you want to do it the hard way, you can can do it. He says to us personally in your own life, if you want to do it the hard way, you can do it. But if you will turn from your sin and you will turn to me, if you will accept my son Jesus as your savior, the one who went to the cross to die for you, to pay the penalty of death in my mercy and grace, I gave you the payment of eternal life. You owe the penalty of death for your sins, and I sent my son to die for you. And he says, if you will turn to Jesus, if you will accept Christ as your Savior, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. God says, I've given you the way of salvation. When will you learn? When will you listen? Will you turn to my son? For those of us who have received Christ as our personal Savior, God says, you've given your heart, you've given your your mind to me, but what, what corner have you withheld? What are you keeping back? Is there a foothold in your life this morning, men and women, boys and girls, of sin in your life? God says there's a foothold you've given the enemy, and it's going to become a beachhead that he's going to move out into your life, and there will be consequences and destruction. But if you will listen, if you will learn, if you will turn back to me, I offer you redemption. I offer you to go before you and drive out the enemy in the land, so to speak. So as you think of your life, as you think of it as a land, God says, if you will walk with me, I will go with you. I will drive out those things in your life. So as we come to a close this morning, I want you to look at your life. I want you to think about where you are personally. I want you to think about our country and where we are as we've turned our back on God. And God is reminding us at our Gilgal, when will you learn? Will you turn back to me? Will you be blessed for by your obedience in walking with me, or do you have to suffer the consequences? I want us to go to the Lord now in prayer. I want you to look at your life. If there are some sins you need to confess this morning, some area of your life you've been withholding, then say to God, God, today I want to give this to you. I need your help. Will you go before me? Will you drive this out of my life? If you've never come to faith in Jesus this morning, he offers you the gift of grace. If you will turn to Jesus and accept him as your savior, accepting his death in your place, God offers you a place in the family of God, forgiveness for your sins, and adoption as a son or daughter of his. And he invites you today to accept his gift of grace. Let's go to God now in prayer. Let's ask him to help conquer the land of our life by giving your life to Jesus in your heart and your mind full control to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll close this out in a moment. Lord God, we thank you for your word, your word that reminds us that we don't have to do it the way it's always been done, that there is a way, a way of hope, a way of salvation, a way to life. You tell us, Jesus, in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You offer us that bridge to life, As you gave your life to be the payment for our sins, you offer us the gift of salvation and eternal life by grace alone through faith alone. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone who's not yet received your son, that today would be the day where they turn to you in faith and accept your gift. Lord God, for the rest of us who have accepted you in the past, Lord, we confess that many of us have withheld some corner of our life. We, we've got some foothold in the land of our life, our heart, our mind, where we've held on to some sin. And, God, you're calling on us today to, to drive that out, to give it to you. And so, God, we confess our sins. We thank you that you're faithful and righteous to forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as you say in John 1, nine. And I pray, God, that you would help us to walk with you. Father, for our nation, we confess that as a country, we've turned our back on you. We've forgotten the blessings. We've forgotten your, your hand of blessing on our country. And we've chosen to do it the world's way. We've chosen to hold on to things that, that do not belong. And, God, you, you, you want that removed from our country. So we pray, Lord, for our, our nation. We pray for our leaders. Would they become men and women of courage? but they turn back to you. God, we thank you that you are able to defeat the enemy. You proved that at the cross. Jesus, you defeated sin, death, and Satan at the cross. And if we will turn to you and trust in you and walk with you, you will bless us and give us not only life, but life abundantly. So we recommit ourselves today. We turn ourselves to you, Christ, and ask that you would lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.